We come now once again to the first Kings. Our reading is first Kings chapter 17 verses 1 through 9. Reading from the English Standard Translation and considering the story of Elijah once again. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kirith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kirith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread, morning, and brought him meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. If you're reading this, you're getting this correctly. He, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Let's pray. Father, the last statement here is about Elijah being fed by someone that you had appointed to feed him. Our Lord God, we would come to you knowing that our spiritual feeding comes to the appointed means of grace, even your word. And so we pray that we would find in Scripture our bread, our meat, our drink, morning and evening, that you would feed us that you would satisfy our spiritual hungers and then grow us through what you're feeding us into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we as Christians can live out who we are and can live out why we are all the days of our lives, having the sure and certain hope in the Lord Jesus that we have everlasting life, both in this life and in the life to come. We pray for your word to strengthen us, your word to guide us, your word to lead us in the salvations you've given to us as those who journey through this world, we who are pilgrims and even strangers in this land. And this we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the title of our message this morning is really the third part of this particular passage. It's the future of Elijah. It's faith walking into the unknown. Because with respect to these nine verses, this is, in fact, the, the fourth message. But the three specifically uh, dealing with God's particular dealings with Elijah during this time. Uh, first was the hiding of Elijah, then was God's provisions for Elijah, and now we have God's 
future with respect to Elijah. Now, we're spending this kind of time here on this section of the Word of God because of its great value in demonstrating to us and showing to us what God is doing with this prophet, this particular man that God has raised up to stand against the pagan world that is now infected and infiltrated the northern kingdom of Israel. And we need to remind ourselves about this paganism. What is it like? Well, uh, the chief captains of this paganism in the nation of, of, uh, of Israel at this time happens to be King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. And together they have mounted a, a, full, a full court press, so to speak, a, a, a full movement to bring about a mass conversion uh, to Baal. Now let's remember who Baal is. Baal is one of the chief gods of paganism at this time. He represents, as it were, the ultimate force of nature. He's, he's the sun god. He's the weather god. He's the one who rules over the sky. Uh, he's the one who controls the rain in particular. And, of course, the rain watering the earth is all about the, the fertility that the earth is supposed to, is supposed to have in order to produce the crops and the food and so forth. He's worshipped because of who he is as this chief and ultimate fertility god. And that's why so many of the worship rituals involved aspects of, of fertility, ritualized in terms of depraved sexual practices, which ultimately also included the, the fruit of fertility. And we're not talking about fruits and vegetables. We're talking about the fruit of human fertility, which would be children. And thus, the worst forms of Baal worship involved infant sacrifice. The heart of paganism always moves to the worship and the veneration of nature. Uh, because such kind of worship is supposed to influence the climate, influence the nature, of, uh, influence the weather on behalf of those who worship Baal. But then again, it also includes this kind of unrestrained sexual freedom. This is the heart of the pagan view of life. Now, that's the constant background we have to the story of Elijah, and we'll continue as we study the story of Elisha. It's really spiritual warfare. It's warfare between the true knowledge of the true God and this paganism, its worship of nature. And that's why we have said in our series theme that if paganism has eclipsed and influenced biblical truth, with respect to our culture and our age, nevertheless, the call to us as believers is always to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what God has called us to do. It really doesn't matter what the background noise happens to be within our culture. It doesn't really matter uh, what is particularly going on. We as Christians have a particular kind of calling in terms of being ambassadors for Christ, in terms of being salt and light with respect to the world. That particular calling and mission always reflects who we are as the adopted children of God and why we are in this world. Those who are to live our lives in such a way that we bear witness to the living God. We bring glory to him. And then God will use that for his purposes within this world. Now, we go on to think about how God in this section is dealing with Elijah, this, this third message on this particular way. It's really a kind of preparation for his continued ministry uh, when the drought is going to come to an end. 
Uh, so we had, as we said a few weeks ago, God's hiding of Elijah, and then we had God's provision for Elijah during that hiding time, and now we have God's future for Elijah. And this is the walk of faith into the unknown. What we see here with Elijah is no different than what the Apostle Paul told us as Christians. Our pilgrimage and journey through this life is a walk by faith and not by sight. It's not by what we see. It's by the one whom we see by faith, even God himself, that we travel and journey through this life. Now, the theme of this particular section that I've been focusing upon can be stated this way. God does what he does with us, for us, to us, even in us, in order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. And that's a complex statement. But it talks about what God sovereignly does in this world in every respect, what God sovereignly does with us, what he does to us, for us, with us, in us. And God does all of that in, to, in order to require of us faith, belief, trust, that God is everything that he claims to be, most particularly on behalf of those that he saves. Now, today we're looking at verses 7, 8, and 9. We can outline this particular three verses with three vital truths. Three things about God's dealing with us and our walk of faith. First, God's current plans for us. And we have to recognize that what is now changes. Secondly, God's future plans for us. They are always in his view. And then thirdly, God's future plans and his promised sustaining care, they always travel together. These are three very significant and vital truths of what it means for us to faith walk into the unknown with respect to our lives, what it means to trust that we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, the first truth we want to look at here, God's current plans for us. What is now changes? That is to say, we see this in Elijah's story. Um, what was now, what was current, God's current plans for Elijah were actually coming to an end. Verse 7 tells us, the brook dries up. Uh, the safe haven is no longer a place where Elijah can stay. And this reflects the basic truth about life. Things change. The best of circumstances change. This reflects, in Elijah's life, what we find out to be the overall teaching of Scripture. The Christian life is a pilgrimage, and it's a journey. 
We have no permanent place in this land. The world is not our home. Every place and every set of circumstances lacks permanence. Now think about Elijah's experiences here. He had the blessing of the now, which is to say, in his current circumstances, uh, while around him there was the increasing trouble of God's judgment upon Israel. There was the drought, which led to food shortages, which then led to famines. In all of that, Elijah had the blessing of his current circumstances. He was safe. He was sustained. And more importantly, he was being sanctified in his absolute dependency upon the sovereignty of God to take care of him. But the blessing of the now and all of those blessings were not permanent in their duration. Uh, this time of solitude had a set limit. It was not God's intended destination for Elijah. Now, let's, let's connect this to our own lives as Christians. I've thought about this, and, and what I find myself doing, not unusual, is nostalgia. Thinking back to earlier decades in my life, uh, thinking back to when times were, as we say, seemed normal. <laughs> you know, growing up in the late 50s and 60s, life seemed really normal. I've shared this often with people. My senior year in high school, uh, I drive to North High School. I pull into the parking lot. I get out of my car. And I look up and I see three teenage guys get out of their pickup truck, each carrying a rifle. And I say to people, what do you think my response was? Well, of course, if they're millennials and younger, they say, will you call 911? I said, we didn't have cell phones. They said, well, you panicked. You got back in your car and you drove away. I go, no. Well, you must have been terribly scared. Actually, not at all. And I pause and they stare and they wonder. Do you want, do you want to know what I was thinking? I said, here's what I was thinking. Oh, today is the yearbook photo day for all the clubs on campus. Those are three friends of mine who belong to the rifle club. I said, I'm nostalgic for that period of time in life when young men could bring their rifles onto a college, uh, onto a high school campus. And, and everyone would look at it and say, sure, makes sense. Let's get those pictures taken today. But the point is that what is now changes. There's not anything in life, this world and this life, in terms of circumstances that are ever permanent. We may have tremendous blessings in what we are experiencing right now, and perhaps even former times afforded us a, a, a greater shelter from all the troubles of the world. But things change. That's constant. 
change is constant. As I've gone through many, many changes in my life, sometimes those changes have been a troublesome problem for my faith. Which is to say, I wanted the good things of this life here and now, I wanted them to be permanent. I didn't want things to change. Uh, we who are parents and now we who are grandparents now can remember when our children, our grown children, were little children, very little children. And for most of us, when our kids were very little, that was a blessed, blessed time. But God intended for those children to grow up. God intended for many things to happen in family life. God had planned for many things to go in directions that we never anticipated or never expected. And those things have not been easy. You see, when these unforeseen changes have come, we have often been very, very surprised. Often hurt. Often dismayed. And I reflect back over my own life. And as I have spent time scrutinizing all of these things, I've come to the conclusion, what was God doing? He was exposing weakness in my own faith. Weaknesses in my trust in God. Even weaknesses in my understanding of who God is and what God actually does with us and for us and to us, and in us. Exposing the fact that often I really wasn't trusting God for all that he is and all that he's honestly and deeply promised for those that he saves. You see, it's vital to our walk of faith and our trust in God to know and to believe that what is now will change. But God himself never, never changes at all. And that's why it's been a comfort to me, and I've been encouraged it to be a comfort to you, to even memorize the first stanza of this wonderful prayer by Anne Waring, in 559, where she says, Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. Now, the second important truth that we find uh, in terms of looking at the future of Elijah is essentially this. God's future plans for us are always in his view. God's future plans for us are always in his view. And we see this in verses 8 and 9. We see this in terms of how God is dealing with Elijah right then. God had future plans for Elijah completely in view when this brook was going to dry up. Which reminds us 
of things we know. God is always on top of things. God is always ahead of the game. God plans ahead with perfect forethought and foresight, always with us in view. Now, at different levels, we can know and believe this. It's a reiteration and a restatement of Romans 8.28 that God providentially works together in all things for our good, for those who love God, who are the called according to his purposes. But we need to understand that this is the bedrock anchor of our faith as we consider the future, as we consider those changes that are sure to come in order for us not to fearfully see them. So, in Elijah's time, think about the pagan view of the future. What was permeating the culture of the, of the ancient Middle East, where Elijah was, where the Canaanites were, where the Sidonians lived, the Phoenicians, and so forth. The kind of... of understanding of the future was deeply, deeply connected to the concept of fate. Now, we don't have a lot of Canaanitish literature about the pagan era of the 6th, 7th, and 8th century B.C. For Elijah's place, for Elijah's uh, area of ministry, but we have very significant literature knowledge from the parallel paganism of the, of the Greek world. Greek paganism tells us a tremendous amount that we know the Canaanites shared some of these vital concepts, particularly in light of this concept of fate. Uh, in terms of Greek literature, fate shows up very, very strongly, but it shows up as something that's never reassuring about the future. Because within the Greek pagan thought, there was always confusion over what and how much did fate actually control? It's a constant theme in, in several of the Greek tragedies that the main characters struggle very, very hard to make choices, to throw off the fate uh, that's fated them, to throw off the forces of fate, to try to escape the fate that the oracle of Delphi has said they're going to experience only to wind up, as they think they're freely choosing ways to get out of this, they are playing entirely into the hands of fate. Every choice they make that they attempt to escape fate with winds up playing into the force of fate. And that's why Greek pagan literature points to the human hunger and hope for meaningful life but so often the stories say that no matter what you do, you'll not escape some hopeless and tragic destiny that's been fated for you. Now we take that perspective along with what is told us in Hebrews chapter 2 about this universal fear of death. And we have this combined very, very sad confusion that though all pagans believed in a future afterlife, there was no certain hope 
that the afterlife would ever bring them any true blessing. But that's a pretty hopeless existence. For the pagans, the future was almost always something to fear, with death being the greatest thing to fear. But in contrast, what God does with Elijah tells us that God always has our future in view and that he's always leading us, which is to say that there is a plan and there is a meaning to our life and to our life story that we are not controlled by a blind and capricious force of fate, but rather by a good and loving God who handles our future with his infinite goodness. So we see in verse 9 that God leads Elijah to his next place. God says, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. This is the next step in Elijah's life. When God had sent Elijah into hiding uh, many, many months earlier, God had this next step in view. Now, there's a couple of important aspects to consider with respect to how God is leading Elijah at this time. One of those aspects we would characterize as being extraordinary, and the other we would characterize as being ordinary. The extraordinary would be this. God leads Elijah with direct, divine, special revelation. Verse 8. The word of the Lord came to him which is to say that God spoke to Elijah in an open, very direct way. God specifically told Elijah his future plans. Uh, God specifically told him where he was going to go and who was going to take care of him there. Now, we call this extraordinary because it is beyond the ordinary ways in which God leads and directs his people. If you stop and you count the people in the Bible to whom God gives specific words of leading, to whom God gives specific direction, and then you compare that with the total number of people of God that you can estimate in the biblical history, uh, you would see that the extraordinary leading of God is both extraordinary and extraordinarily rare. I'll give you an example. How many people did God speak to when God is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt? One. Moses. And yet, the numbers of people brought out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, is estimated between a minimal size of one and a half million to as many as six million. That ratio of who God speaks to directly and the number of people that God doesn't speak to directly is probably pretty constant throughout biblical history. You see, God's intention for his people as he gave them the law of Moses, 
was that the people of God would live every day not by the voice of God coming down to them from heaven, but rather the voice of God coming to them from the written word. We know that's the constant normative case because of the truth that Jesus spoke to Satan in the great temptation. Matthew 4, 4. Jesus says to Satan, it is written, referencing then the written word of God, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The source of our lives as Christians and the source of the truth that we are to live by as Christians comes from the written word of God. And this constantly applies to God's present and future plans for our lives. There have been millions of Christian believers throughout history, millions who have believed in the God of the Bible, millions who have believed in Jesus Christ through all the long ages of human history. And it has been the Bible, God's revealed word that has guided them and opened up to them God's leading and direction in their lives, not some special, divine, extraordinary word of the Lord coming to them from heaven. Which is to say, the first way in which God led Elijah was extraordinary. But for the life of all Christians, we have to look at it and say, hmm, extraordinarily rare. And of course, we can say if the confession says those former ways of God's revealing his word and will to his people having now ceased. But then the ordinary way, uh, the written word of God and God's providential leading becomes the second thing we see here with respect to Elijah. The ordinary leading of God is the far greater set of circumstances for Elijah. He gets one direct word from God. Go there, be taken care of by her. Then the ordinary leading of God is Elijah has to get there. Elijah has to travel to this next place, to the city of Zarephath in Sidon, and it is a very long walk. God doesn't choose to extraordinarily teleport Elijah miraculously to his destination, which is at least 125 miles in the most direct route. Walking there may have been 30 to 40 percent longer than that. So at a very minimum, at a very good walking pace, it would have taken Elijah five days to get there. So not only did Elijah have to walk, but in a land of scarcity, Elijah had to find food and water along the way. Elijah had to furthermore avoid Ahab's search parties that were actively seeking him. So all in all, Elijah is walking into his future by faith and trust in God. 
and in God's ordinary means to lead him, to guide him, and to direct him. Doing so with the wisdom and discretion that God teaches us from his word. Now, my point in emphasizing this is God's plans for us always have our future in view just as much as God did for Elijah. We know this because it's one of the clearest teachings in the New Testament. If you turn to Ephesians 2.10, you would read these words. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You and I do not know our future days in this world, but God does, because God has established plans for our future days. God has planned the good works that we are to walk in. In. What does this mean? That God will lead us from the here and now, from these present circumstances that will change to our future circumstances. And he will do so with these good works in view. God has prepared these future circumstances and the good works that we are going to do because God's plans always have our future in view. Now what this means is that we don't really need any special word from heaven by which we are to be led. We don't have to have a special word from heaven by which we are to be led. Because the Apostle Paul tells us that the scriptures are sufficient. If you look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul says that the scriptures that are breathed out by God are, quote, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, if the man of God, Timothy was a man of God, Paul was a man of God, the, the shepherd teachers, the elders of the church, if those men who have responsibility to shepherd the flock of God, if those men will find in the word of God everything necessary for them to pursue the good works that God prepares them for, how much more for all the people of God? that the word of God is going to be that which equips them to do these good works. The word of God, God's ordinary means of speaking to his people, prepares us for the good works that we are to walk in. The scriptures are the most significant thing that God has given to us as God has our future in view. Because our future has always been in view with respect to what God is doing with us. Being his workmanship. 
created into a union with Christ Jesus by salvation and the blood of the cross. We have been destined by God to walk in these good works that God has prepared prepared in advance. Therefore, we can trust that God will providentially lead us to them. God always has our future in view. Now, the proof of this, the strongest proof of this, is the cross of the Lord Jesus and the gospel. The gospel itself is the ultimate proof that God has always had our future in view. Because the cross is the great revelation of God's future plans for us. The cross has always had our future in view in terms of reconciling us to God so that we might have all eternity with God. In fact, Jesus clearly taught this the night before his crucifixion. John 14, 1 through 3. He says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Everything that Jesus says is future-oriented with respect to the disciples. Jesus says that after his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, he is going to his father's house to prepare our future home. Now, this is where our earthly journey and pilgrimage is aimed. This is our guaranteed destination. This is our future and our hope. This is the very thing that we sang in stanza five of our first hymn. At last the march shall end. The wearied ones shall rest. The pilgrims find their father's house. Jerusalem, the blessed. We are faith walking into the unknown every day. The God's future plans for us are always in his view. Guaranteed by the work of Christ. Finally, the third vital truth that we see out of Elijah's experience here is that in our faith walking into the unknown, God's future plans for us and God's promised sustaining care for us always travel together. We see this then in verse 9. God says to Elijah, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, let's make an important observation here. God is sending Elijah into the heart of paganism. Sidon is the home country of Jezebel. 
um, Sidon is where her father, Ethbaal, rules as king. Ethbaal, a name that means with Baal. Where in truth, Baal himself is worshipped as king. But the truth that we see in verse 9 is this. God's future plans for Elijah and God's promised care for Elijah are two things that inseparably travel together. So what, what is God saying to Elijah about his new set of circumstances? Your future place of living and my sustaining care will always be there together for you. Wherever I, your God, lead you, you will be supplied by my care. This means, Elijah, that even in the capital of paganism, you will be able to keep seeking the kingdom of God and its righteousness for everything you will ever need. God's leading and care will be there for you because they can never be separated. Now, of course, this understanding of what God is doing with Elijah comes to us out of the New Testament. It comes to us out of the teaching of Christ himself. It comes to us out of the Sermon on the Mount. It comes to us out of Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, where Jesus challenges his disciples about their concerns over food and clothing and shelter. All of the main necessities of life, all the things that the Gentiles, the pagans, so eagerly seek, what does Jesus say about them and what does Jesus say to his disciples? Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. This is the challenge. To live each day believing that God's future plans for us and God's sustaining care for us are inseparably and invincibly guaranteed. Every one of our future tomorrows lies in plain view to our Heavenly Father. And God has already written on the calendar of all of our future days both the good works that we are to do and all of the ways in which he's going to sustain and care for us. God has already planned for the ravens and the widows to be there for us, to give us our daily bread. And that's why we are to believe, as Paul instructed the Philippians, that Elijah's God, Paul's God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will supply all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. This is why we can be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make all of our requests to God, truly knowing that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Just like Elijah, we are faith walking into the unknown. But just like Elijah, every change set of circumstances that we will ever face 
falls under God's sovereign plans for us. And God has promised to us as much as he ever promised to Elijah that the pilgrimage into the unknown, that we walk by faith, God himself will always be the supply. God will always take care of our needs until we have finished the good works which he has prepared for us to do. Therefore, we ought to fully embrace all of the prayer of Anne Waring, all of the biblical truth that is expressed. Father, I know that all of my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I would not be, I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. In service which thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me. My secret heart has taught the truth that makes thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. After we pray, let us sing this hymn together as our prayer in response to God's word. Father in heaven, enable us to trust you for every day that you have written into our calendars with respect to our future. Enable us to walk by faith and not by sight. Enable us to believe that everything that you are doing with us, to us, for us, and in us is to lead us to a deeper trust and faith that, Lord God, you are everything you have ever promised to be for all of those that you save through your son, Jesus. Give us that heart, that trust in you that's not afraid of the things that are to come. In Jesus' name, amen.